listen to ink studs and my guest this week is evan dom uh evan will be in vancouver this weekend for van calf on saturday and sunday i think what's the dates the uh 19th no the 21st and the 22nd that sounds right yes at the lovely roundhouse uh community center have you been to vancouver before no i never have uh toronto is my only um my only canada experience i'm excited though it sounds nice it's it's it, it is a nice city. I I'll, I'll say for just uh, on my own end, I'm, I'm quite uh, happy with Vancouver. You're gonna find it's gonna be a lot warmer than Toronto this time of year. That is fine. Uh, people are <laughs> complaining that about the weather being atrocious in Toronto this weekend because uh, we're recording this before TCAF, which you'll also be at, but that won't help people because by the time it's well, posted, maybe. I, at this point, it's, it, I may actually last minute be going to TCAF, but by the time this is posted, I will or I will not have. <laughs> like the Schrodinger's cat of uh, Schrodinger's, <laughs> Schrodinger's TCAF. <laughs> you won't know until you step foot in the uh, convention hall. Basically, yes. Or the library. Um, yeah. No, it's a, it's a, the Van Caps held in a very, very lovely part of town. It's very quaint and uh, serene know. and right by the the water and not a lot of hustle bustle there so i think you'll enjoy it um yada 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 i am blabbering on too long uh people will know uh evan's work from uh his uh multitude of uh comics on his website rice-boy.com uh most uh appropriately titled uh series related to that is rice boy as well as um 
the work that Evan's currently working on, Batu, um, which has two books in print for it, Name and the Mark and Sword in the Sacrament. Uh, but you're posting those three days a week. Um, Well-ish. Ish. <laughs> uh, a, a non-committally three days a week. Lately, I'm down to two a week because I I'm spread a little thin. But uh, you know, it's getting there. I'm 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 in the thick of a part right now that I've been looking forward to for like years. So that helps motivate me. And that's you're at I think uh, when I read last night seven page seven hundred forty four. Yeah, actually, coincidentally, I uh, the page I'm drawing right now is the page that will make it the longest comic I've ever done in my life, seven hundred forty five. So that's funny. What's the the order of tales that was up to that many? Yeah, pages. Wow. <clears throat> um, well, let's jump into kind of that background then, because you started Rice Boy, what in two thousand six? Yeah, ten ten years ago, around um, you know sometime in the past couple of months um and order of the order of tales was what you did before race boy uh it was after it was oh, okay 2008 to 2010 and then uh that too i've been doing since mid middle 2010 <clears throat> um altogether that's you know well over 2000 pages Something like that, yeah. It's a, it's a lot. I mean, it's taken a huge amount of time that is invisible to people when they just look at it, so it just looks like a lot of stuff, but I see it as, like, you know, stuff that I've been passionately working on for since I was 19, so uh, it doesn't seem like that much to me. I don't know. <laughs> I'm I going to say it's, 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 it's an amount to be pretty proud of. Uh, oh, thank you. The, the productivity. Um Maybe going back, as you say, you started when you're 19. Um, what were some of the comic stuff you were kind of into and looking at at that point? Um, I I I don't particularly remember. I I have never been like primarily motivated by comics as a medium. Mm -hmm. uh, Rice Boy, if I can point to anything, was 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 motivated by like maybe. Betty Boop cartoons and 70s psychedelic art. Um, but the comics that sort of around that time in my life were, were showing me what sort of the grander area that could be covered by comics were like um, Chris Ware's stuff and um, uh, Blankets by Craig Thompson was really important to me at that point. Um, but yeah, I know you're a, you're a very densely educated guy <laughs> about comics and I might not be that. I mean, I love, I love them, but I'm not, I don't read very many comics lately. Um, that's okay. You're, <laughs> you're busy drawing 2000 pages. Um, now you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to recall talking to mutual friends. You were involved. Um, you kind of got a lot, I guess in your early days involvement with the comics community through kind of message boards and stuff yeah i was on um enter void do you know that site no or maybe it's just called the void it's entervoid.com uh some really ancient embarrassing work of mine is buried there on a under a screen name that's not my name um <laughs> but uh mickey z was on there and james stoko um and and it was great. Like it, it it's very it's it's a sort of like competitive comics drawing thing. I, I was in it, I guess, three or four years, like in high school and right after. And it involves everybody makes like a character, and then they have like these fights with other people's characters, and they draw little comics of them fighting. And it's so it's geared for a, a type of comic that is not me and not what I ended up pursuing. But I have no idea how I, how I would have gained any sort of fluency in the medium without that uh without that website and the culture around it because it was so it was so focused on like you know taking the work seriously and moving forward at all costs sort of mm -hmm. and uh and emphasizing fundamentals but not um like like technical drawing ability but but not at the expense of moving forward at all costs <laughs> i i haven't been there in a while but uh yeah it was very important to me Whereabouts did you grow up? 
uh, North Carolina. I'm from Asheville, which is uh, sort of the progressive bastion of the North Carolina stretch of the Appalachians. I went to school at uh, Appalachian State, which is near there. <clears throat> oh, wow. Um, I'm in Brooklyn now, though. Now, was there many comic stuff around there when you were young? Or was that, like, the internet kind of your 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 safety area to go to? Yeah, I don't know. I... Um... There, there, no, there weren't comics. I mean, there was like there were some nice comic shops. They, uh, I didn't know any other artists doing anything like what I was trying to do, uh, either where I grew up or at school. And I kind of, in retrospect, appreciate that. Like, I liked being surrounded by people who were passionately interested in things that I was like tangential to or not totally connected with. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the internet was my main connection to other people doing this sort of thing, and I and I wasn't fully aware of like what, like where the scene was when I started publishing Rice Boy. I was putting it on like Live Journal, I think, for the first little bit, uh, and the only webcomic I was even aware of was Akewood, and I wasn't aware that it was a part of a larger scene. I just loved it. Yeah. Um. So I, I kind of like fell into doing a webcomic because there, like, how else would you publish something with with, with uh, at, at that point? I think like 2006 was like the height of LiveJournal being a platform. It yeah, it feels that way to me. But I, I got like a little shitty website together before too long. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now it's interesting you're saying you weren't not super knowledgeable about a lot of other comic stuff because I can kind of I can see like um, the influences coming through in the book not being comics but really looking more like literature and ooh that's I, that stuff is always opaque to me in my own work so I love hearing other people <laughs> like say what they see in it you know because I can't I can't I don't know where I get influence you know <laughs> well I mean it's um there's not a lot, and maybe this is my own naivety, because I, I know a lot about certain types of comics, but I think like uh, the kind of epic fantasy uh, world that you're you're creating in these series, um, there's not a lot of like stuff that I'm seeing uh, kind of going at that scope you're going at. Um, yeah, I get that, and that and that was, I guess, a lot of what what made me want to do. Uh, Rice Boy to start with was that there was there were things that I was really attracted to in storytelling and I wanted to do it in a visual medium and comics were the one that that I could do mm-hmm. and um, and it's weird to me that that there are like things of a certain scope just aren't really touched on in at least American comics and things of a certain degree of like weirdness are considered off limits. Or it felt that way to me then, and it still kind of does. I mean, I'm not... I'm sure I'm misrepresenting it, but that that was a big motivating factor when I was starting out. Well, what do you mean by weirdness? Just, um... Uh, it's hard to explain. I guess the, the idea that you can have something like a setting full of nothing but weird creatures without any sort of, like, metatextual explanation of why or what it means or where it is... Mm-hmm. Like, there's no... That's one of my favorite things about um, fantasy generally, I guess, is that when when it's done right, there's an unusual element that is never explained, but you believe it because it's it's followed through to its conclusion capably. Yeah. Does that make sense? Uh, maybe that's a stretch of a comparison, but but um, I, I just... There, there, are, there are very narrow ways that... that uh, culture develops thinking about like the way that art should look and the way that stories should go. And it is, I think our responsibility to look, to examine those and push past them. Um, I think one of the interesting things for me with, with, with your work and I really say, see you setting it up in rice point is just, and you kind of touched on this, but it's how you kind of let the work kind of exist in its own, um, not thoroughly prescribed reality. Mm-hmm. And um, 
And I'm curious, like, going into this, do you have a lot in mind that's not explained, or are you just kind of allowing yourself to go and just kind of let things happen organically? Oh, you mean, like, in the process of making one of these? Yeah, making this world. Like, there's a lot of world building in your in your comics. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rice Boy is a weird case, because it really was... Like, I had the outlines of a story, but it really was just piling a lot of stuff together in a way that felt, like, harmonious at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, like, working with a lot of, like, oh, isn't this cool? I've been wanting to do something with this type of ideas. Uh, as I've... So the other two major books that I've done have been set in that same setting. Um, so I had this sort of, like, an implicit sort of meta-continuity between the stories, and that that just has pushed me in a direction of thinking more consciously about what everything means and where everything fits. Uh, and, and Vatu, I'm trying to sort of walk a line between uh, planning everything out and being intentional and still sort of being fluid and flexible with the, like, small-scale scripting and drawing. Mm-hmm. Like, like Vatu is uh, probably the densest, it's definitely the densest thing I've ever done in terms of just uh, uh, world-building-y stuff, like how the setting works and how every place fits together. And uh, that's all, you know, consciously developed a lot of it long, long beforehand. And the story was pretty, pretty well mapped out. But, uh, you know, it'll still end up in ways that you don't expect and things have come up and fit together in ways that are nice and that I never could have foreseen and that's that is the coolest thing to me about <laughs> about putting together something of this scale just kind of letting it come out on its own yeah yeah or, or like figuring out where the line is between like like planning and and just sort of feeling it mm-hmm. um one of the things I was thinking about with rice boy where it's interesting because it's I mean it's your big early work is uh, seeing how you kind of jump in leaps and bounds as a creator and kind of see you kind of get more comfortable, uh, really stronger as an artist. And I'm interested is uh, kind of creating such a simple character. Was it you um, kind of knowing your limitations at the time as an artist? Uh, no, I mean, I, I I had done stuff with like, full-fledged human beings in it. Mm-hmm. Um, R- Rice Boy himself was a character that I'd been drawing since I was like 16 or something. Oh, okay. uh, and I always thought it would be kind of cute to put him in like a... just this little bewildered, simple character in an enormous, overblown, like high fantasy story. And that sort of like... That was the thing that percolated in my head for, I guess, a few years before I even thought of making it as a comic. Um, but I guess in, 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 in retrospect, it, he, he's a character that I, it was very easy for me to work with and make, make, uh, you know, make communicative. So it, mm-hmm. it's good that I used him, I guess. <laughs> and there's a lot, there's several other characters like that that have like serious, just endemic limitations on how they can, uh, uh, emote and and like body communicate uh, like Toe the robot guy has just his face is just a TV screen and doesn't really show anything that's usually very meaningful and uh, I just thought that looked cool but it's a, it's kind of an interesting thing and it pushed me to sort of figure out new solutions to to those problems. Um, I was wondering about that about the images you'd use in the in the face screen um, if there was a particular. Thing for them for the moments in the comic. I guess usually not. I don't really remember. I and that's a question that I get like maybe more than any other question, which is weird. <laughs> <laughs> what does this mean right here? This thing that I made when I was nineteen. Uh, <laughs> uh, most of it is is meaningless. There's a lot of uh, Stanley Kubrick movies and Betty Boop cartoons. Uh, and and occasionally I would try to get something that like fit the tone or or whatever, but uh, I oh another thing that really inspired me in that comic was the sort of the the philosophy underlying like capital S surrealism, which is about which is about you know random input and chaos and finding meaning within it that's not intended to be there, 
So maybe that makes sense then, that his <laughs> face is usually meaningless. Did you? I, I kind of like that. Did you uh, have particular moments where you try to really instill surrealist ideas into the book? Purposefully? Mm, well, there's an overall aesthetic, and there was like a... That's a hard question. There's a lot of images that uh, that I will get less now than then. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, you know, there's images that are meaningless that will appear to you and to me. And there's... Uh, part of the fun of Rice Boy was to try to make that intelligible. Yeah. To work with those in a way that, that like, fit and, and suggested that they actually made sense. Uh, and and that, that's a very surrealist idea to me. <laughs> um, you do kind of... Uh, there is a lot of setting in the book, like, uh, kind of, like, deserty. that kind of reminds me a little bit of, like that kind of spaghetti western type thing. And I can mm. feel like that might be something that's kind of feeding into Seminus too, Or even just like early Jodorowsky. Um, I wasn't aware of Jodorowsky back then, but I definitely... Uh, uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly was one of my favorite movies at that point. And there's a line... Uh, I, I, there's a line where TOE and Golgo are like meeting, I think, for the first time in the book. There's a, there's a sequence of dialogue that is basically taken right out of The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Uh, which is like goes against my current sort of internal rules for <laughs> the the setting, but I but it's cute. <laughs> um, now, w- one interesting theme I found in in uh, Rice Boy and Vatu is this idea of kind of land ownership and colonialism. Mm. Um, which struck up in both of kind of people taking over other people's spaces. And I'm wondering if that is just a coincidence or is that a particular interest of you, of yours? Um, it may have been a coincidence at first. I don't, I don't know that that's something I was thinking very consciously of with Rice Boy. With, with Vatu, it was a, a, when I was planning it, it was more just a thing to get the story moving to, and the story moving and to get the main character uh, to get her like into a new setting, yeah. But as it's developed, I have, I have used it to explore a lot of ideas as I figure them out myself about sort of how culture creates identity and what, um, and I, I don't know the 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 depth of colonialism. Yeah, like prescribed uh, culture versus um, your own internal culture. Well, I mean, if there is such a thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> just uh, that 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 story has really settled into like focusing on a, a range of ideas that I wasn't aware of when I started it. That that sort of all orbit around how we make ourselves, um, and that is a cool like the 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 focus on like land ownership is a interesting. In retrospect, I guess is an interesting way of like approaching that to me. Yeah. Um, did you kind of plan out Vatu to be this giant? Yeah, I, uh, well, I didn't have any conception of, like, how the the strict number of pages, but I knew it would be bigger than anything I'd done before, and I, um, I had, like, at at the start, I, I knew the overall arc of everything, and I had an idea that it would be eight books, and every book would be like a different sort of a focus. Now it is four books, or it's going to be actually definitely four books, uh, but it's still going to be like twelve hundred pages or something. I um, wow, yeah. So like the scope has always been enormous. I haven't. I've been increasingly aware of how enormous. Like I did not think I would be still working on it six years later, <laughs> five, six, yeah. Um. And I may not have done it if I had known that, you know. Like it's it's insane. This this is this medium is like it, it takes so long to say anything at all. Is do you feel? How do I put this? Like um, when you take on such a giant project, and there's that weird obligation of having to finish it 
and not take any shortcuts with it? Or have you been able to kind of strip down? Because you said originally eight books were like eight of the same size books, or did you just kind of rejig it to be four books? Well, I didn't really know how big they would be at that point. I, yeah. I didn't. Um, I don't consider that a, a shortcut. I, that particular thing was just how I how it shook out when the planning got denser. Like there just wasn't enough. Um, the books all were weren't saying something, mm-hmm. and now that it's four books. The 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 the, essential, the content that I had in mind at the start is all in there, but it is now in four books that say something each one. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a hard thing, and I and I'm like, you know, it's a job, and I lose interest, and I waffle back and forth about it. But I I have, if I've learned nothing else doing all this, I've learned how to stick to it and take it seriously. Um, yeah, I want to talk about that, like kind of keeping yourself focused because this, you know, 700 pages over the last six years, that's still pretty, pretty good compared to a lot of other stuff I see out there. Mm. Um, and and what is it you do to, to keep yourself focused and kind of do you have a routine, like a, a working routine on, on getting a comics done? Um, not uh, not strictly. I, I definitely just habitually publishing stuff online for ten years has has put me in a mindset where there's a certain amount of stuff I have to finish each week. I now I'm doing like two pages a week. I have a day where I pencil and a day or a day where I pencil and ink and a day when I color, and I work everything else around there most of the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, yeah, th- w- when I was like. First, sort of becoming aware of what web comics were in, I guess, two thousand seven or something. There was this huge emphasis on pick a schedule and stick to it and don't miss a page ever. And that may be how it was then. I don't think that's how it is now. But that is still, I don't know. That informed my my whole work ethic about this stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm not on a strict schedule, but I'm the only reason I'm able to consistently move forward is because I have that in my head somewhere. Um, but no, I don't know. I try to wake up early. I go to the gym three times a week. I uh, drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> get it, I get it done. I, I try to keep weekends where I have uh, a life, so it makes me get more stuff done. <laughs> now, before we started... Um we were mentioning you're doing a bunch of conventions coming up, but last year you did 10 conventions. Was it 10 or 11? I know, something like that. It was a bunch. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering uh, that balance, because you self-published the collections um, with help from Topatico, if I'm yeah. right. Um, and I want to talk a bit about that balance of having to push your own work um, at the same time still being able to do, do your own work. Um, just the whole economy that's based around conventions and how that kind of balance that. Yeah, it's tricky. Uh, and there's a part of, there's a part of it that just involves like shutting off your brain and going to the airport and like just doing whatever mental stop gaps you have to do to not like panic about it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and I the only reason I do so many is because like I like f- I do I make money at them and I and I, and I have to do them like it's a it's a part of my my whole thing. I don't think that I love con- I love doing shows, but I don't think that they're worth the effort for self promotion. So I I I, uh, I wouldn't do it for that. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, I mean, you know, I did ten last year. That's that works out to like an average of like once a month. No, yeah. not quite. But I, it, it's just uh, it takes off like several days a month, and I try to get work in around the edges when I when I'm doing them, and it's a uh, it's hard, but I it, it's a huge important part of uh, what makes this possible. And also, like, I love it. Like, it's exhausting and stressful, but you get to be in a new city for a couple days, and and. It's so much. It's so great, and you get to like see the people that you, in theory, kind of work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do love it. And I and it's so easy to complain about it, but I do love it. 
Well, tell me a little bit more about the choice to be um, self-publishing, because it's like, it's very, to me, it feels very specific, because you're not putting out just like mini comics or something like, these are high quality books you're doing with really a lot of production on it um, and quite large um, banging a book on the table so people get an idea. Uh, <laughs> But that's that to me is like a particular choice of this is how you want to do it, uh, especially because there has been more webcomic folks going to uh, standard comics publishers over the last couple of years. Yeah, um, that and that's like we were invisible to them until the last couple of years, basically. Yeah, like we're still largely invisible. That's a big part of it. And I'm not. Uh, there are publishers that I would love to work with. I, I started doing self-publishing because I didn't know what else to do. I did like some print-on-demand books to start, which is a just a not a sustainable idea for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're ridiculously expensive, right? And just yeah, not well especially printed. for especially for color. I, I mean, I actually I I don't know what the technology is like right now at all. So I I shouldn't even talk about that. Everything's so different now. <laughs> but. Uh, you know, I've always had in mind that that I that they should be like big, beautiful books. And when I finish the story and I'm going to get it printed, like I know, I know the format that suits it, and that is the format that suits it. And and the one of the most valuable things about self-publishing to me is is that like all of that is up to me. Like I I, I know how to present the thing. And I know the challenges that that presents, and and I can do it the way that I want to do it if I can. And um, Kickstarter makes it feasible in a way that I ne- it never could have been otherwise. Do, taking pre-orders and getting like getting an actual book printed where you need to get a thousand of them at least, and that's how I've been doing it. And uh, I, I started working with Tapatico or or make that thing specifically as like a. a uh, a branch of Topatico that it's does the fulfillments, right? Yeah, they do Kickstarter stuff and fulfillments, and um, uh, and they're great. And they, I started working with them last year on the illustrated Wizard of Oz. I did, uh, and and so yeah, I've been slowly figuring this stuff out and slowly working with people who, more and more people who like can do parts of it better than I can do. But uh, they're just having control of the form of the thing is so important to me. <laughs> it's quite amazing um, how they're able to support folks in that way. And it seems like when I hear the stories of someone's apartment being filled with boxes and doing all the shipping themselves. and Yeah, it's awful. I have a storage unit, actually, still. I Most of my um, inventory is with Topatico, but I have a, I've had a storage unit for, like, several years here in Brooklyn for a lot of that stuff just because it's there's so much of it (laughs) (laughs) and you can see Evan and pick up some books at upcoming conventions yeah please help me (laughs) (laughs) Um, so Kickstarter's really become um, a central part of the business model it has but but that's really um, that that's because it provides a, a, a sort of a networked and a super functional platform for something that could be done without it. Like pre-orders, it doesn't have a, it's just like the way that I and most publishers like me use Kickstarter is just as a pre-order system. Yeah. So there's nothing that really, there's nothing that's inherently Kickstarter about that, but there's an infrastructure that Kickstarter provides. And there's a, there's like a real significant um, just crowd of people that just like follow Kickstarter and, get stuff off of it that they've never heard of before and that that's a cool thing to have access to but yeah. i don't mean to downplay kickstarter i'm just saying that um it's not uh different in kind from the sort of stuff that has been possible before it's just easier yeah it, it creates a platform to uh to do it yeah um, much like e-crater i guess but nowhere <laughs> near <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, creator. Um, now you mentioned the Wizard of Oz uh, book that you did, um, and you're also now you're working on uh, doing illustrations for uh, Moby Dick. 
uh, and I'm interested how those kind of function in the breaks from your regular work. Yeah, uh, those are. I, I had been wanting to do that for a while. Like, there's there's so many cool books that are in the public domain that you can just do whatever you want with. And the Wizard of Oz made sense to me as a thing to start with because it's. Um, it, I feel like it. I could play to my strengths in illustrating it, and it's a fun sort of a. It's a fun book with a lot of room to move, uh, illustration wise. Mm -hmm. um, and Moby Dick is totally different. But, uh, yeah, it's fun to, I don't know, I always sort of, like, I always feel like I have to have another thing going at the same time so that I can bounce back and forth between two different projects, or I feel like that for the past few years, uh, at least, now that I'm, like, out of school and doing it full-time, not last few years, last, like, eight years. <laughs> what did you go to school for? Uh... I for the first year and a half or so I was studying studio art and then I got a degree in Spanish instead. Oh, wow. <laughs> um but I took a lot I, I got a lot out of like a few like technical drawing and painting classes. The school was a was uh the art program was very like fine art oriented mm -hmm. and that's not me. And I kinda I you know, I desperately wanted to go to like a SCAD cartooning program or something but i i kind of i'm glad that i didn't i, I don't uh i don't think that's for me but uh, i got a degree in spanish and i got really into linguistics and that still is very important to me it's just not doesn't really connect with my um my work <laughs> have you found a way to bring it in at all ever um there's occasionally like linguistics related ideas that i work with there's a story i did for um the Iron Circus anthology New World that uh, that sort of spun out of some thinking about linguistics that I was thinking years and years ago. Well, but, uh, you know, everything feeds into it somehow, eventually. What are some of the ideas in linguistics that um, really kind of uh, grab you and keep you interested? Oh, or that's... Keep you interested, like... I mean, this sounds like it's a big part of who you are, uh, but we haven't explored it. <laughs> uh, I like it a lot. I think about it constantly. I um, the the biggest thing that it has taught me is a sense of relativism. Like, you know, everybody learns how grammar works, and then they feel like they have the rule set for the language, and they feel like they know what it, the correct way to speak and write English is. And they can uh, impose that feeling of correctness on anybody and be totally right because that's what the rules are. But if you can like, wrap your head around the idea of grammar being just describing the language as it is spoken and not prescribing how it ought to be spoken, that is so much more uh, true to the way that language actually works and like more humane. Mm -hmm. um, like like people who speak uh, a, a like a slangy version of English or a, what's considered a non-standard version of English, the mainstream tendency is to think of that as just a failure to speak English, when really it's just speaking a different language, like it, like a a, 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 a language uh, related to English that can say everything that English has to say. It just says it in a different way, um, and that's a very important idea to me, and it's informed like my politics generally or maybe one i don't know which one came first but but that that is a a core idea of my understanding of the world is that kind of that kind of thing where you you have to be suspicious of where the rules come from kind of to to in summary does that make sense yeah no it, and it's like um i haven't taken linguistics my my major was history but one things we talk about in other contexts of different countries is their vernaculars in different areas um, and how languages would change. Say in China, um, there's all sorts of different vernaculars of uh, Mandarin, uh, not mm -hmm. just one set way, because when you have so many people, languages will mutate uh, through areas um, where in English we kind of resist that and kind of put, put it on class terms, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, where maybe where you grew up 
I'm going to presume, would be looked down upon as like inferior type of English. Yeah, a lot of it. In, in, in the South, there's a, um, you know, there was a, there was a, a dialect where I grew up uh, mostly among like generationally working class people that was extremely, extremely, is extremely, extremely localized. Like people have lived there for generations and the dialect occupies like within a certain definition of what the dialect is, it occupies like, you know, 50 square miles or something. It's yeah. crazy. But then you have like this encroaching quote unquote standard English that is, uh, that is swallowing up all these things. This has nothing to do with comics. Though. It's fine though. No, I like <laughs> this. It, I find it interesting because, um, the, the dynamics of languages is, is really fascinating. When I was at Emerald city, uh, is that in March or April? I can't remember. It was in April. It's time. I love that show. Time is all mutant for mutating for me, and um, it's a flat circle, you know. I know uh, that feel. <laughs> um, but one thing that kind of happened a couple of times is I slipped into like a really Canadian accent, and uh, was frightening people, or not necessarily frightening them, but they weren't quite sure how to take it. Uh, which is kind of fun too, uh, mm -hmm. especially when you have another Canadian there. We can really get into it, you know. Um, but it, it, which was interesting because I'm from Vancouver, the the almost furthest west you can get in Canada. Uh, but I was talking to some of Toronto, and we can both get into right that like you know middle of Canada accent. That's so funny. Both, yeah, but like you know Seattle, which is three hours from me. Uh, from where I'm sitting right now, maybe a little less than three hours because I'm a little closer to the border than most folks in Vancouver. Um, the, there's there's accent differences between us. That's so funny. Like there's so like it, it makes you like the, the 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 mechanisms by which that sort of thing happens are so like complicated. Yeah. And I don't. I I wish I could understand all of them. Or an accent like Kate Beaton's, which is just from this whole other world. Oh yeah, some <laughs> magical place. Yeah, but it's it's true that like the because she comes from like a really small regional area, um, there is a really unique, interesting accent that's developed there that comes along with like this weird hundreds of years of history and weird oppression and um, the, like the Acadian peoples. So there was that at a time, and they got moved out. It's mm -hmm. it's fascinating. I do wish I knew more about linguistics. But. Oh, I'll give you some. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a reading list. <laughs> I won't promise to read it. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll make an attempt. <laughs> I had a cousin who was really into linguistics, and we were talking once, and I went, "Oh yeah, Noam Chomsky's a ling is linguist." Like, yeah. Like, well, you know, he does all this other stuff. He's like, "What? What?" And I had to explain this whole other world of Noam Chomsky that has nothing to do with <laughs> linguistics and it, it was kind of fun that's you know that seemed so weird to me at first that he that he went off to be this like not that he went off but that he's yeah. uh now more known for being like a like a like a leftist theorist yeah but but now it makes total sense because an understanding of like what language is it's inherently political and it leads you to certain conclusions about like how every part of culture develops in a, in a comparable way. And like it, it um, I don't know. I understand uh, where he's coming from that Noam Chomsky. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he's not just left, like he's pretty into anarchism in particular. And, oh, yeah, and that so. there's just something interesting there as far as like the institutionalizing language, maybe, I don't know, mm -hmm. just throwing it out there. Yeah. Well, English is deinstitutionalized de already. There is technically no governing body, although people always want to point to like the dictionary as the authority. But that is uh, that is one of the saving graces of this language is that uh, there's nobody has a real claim to what to what it is. I think that's a that's an asset. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I didn't think about it that way. <clears throat> Like Spanish, Spanish and French both have like you know royal academies or whatever. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Okay. Well, it's not, <laughs> it's not comics at all. I'm so sorry, sorry, folks. I ruined uh, your podcast. 
Oh, don't worry. It's been ruined many times by <laughs> me on other tangents. <laughs> um, sticking with the classical talking, um, I want to talk a little bit about um, the work you're doing right now with Moby Dick and how that's kind of... So I was looking at the art, and it's very different from uh, what you're doing with Batu. Uh, and so mm. I see, like, you're really challenging yourself with that one to really do these, like, dark, intense scenes. Cool. I'm glad that it looks that way. Um, yeah, I, uh, well, part of the appeal of doing, like, illustrating other people's books, especially people who are dead and can't, like, argue with me, <laughs> um, is... Uh, is that I can sort of read the book and get a sense and, and, and like play a support role in a way that I feel like works with the book the best and isn't about me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's just really fun. So it, it was fun. To like with wizard of Oz, I tried to develop this really like, um, I wanted everything to look kind of like a cute little miniature, like a little, um, like a dollhouse scale thing. And Moby Dick, I want everything to look super, like heavy and melodramatic and, and, and suggestive of really old, uh, illustration styles. But, uh, I don't know. I, I can't like, I don't have any sense of what, um, my style is like, I don't, I, I see it. I, I don't see it. Uh, you know what I mean? Like I can't see style in my own work and I feel like I'm just making it up from scratch whenever I start a new project. Uh, so yeah, that's what it feels like I did. I don't know. <laughs> What kind of preparatory work do you do when you're starting a new long-form story? Um, for Moby Dick, I got a ton of books from the library. I downloaded hundreds and hundreds of pictures <laughs> from Google Image Search. I went to, uh, in, in Mystic, Connecticut, which is uh, not very far from me at all, there's uh, the I think the last wooden whaling ship in the world is there on exhibit, and you can just go and visit it. It's called the Charles W. Morgan, and it's basically indistinguishable from the book that uh, is described in Moby Dick. So I had to go there and look at that and take a bunch of pictures. Um, but I guess Moby Dick is a weirder project than anything I've done before because it actually requires all this like visual research. With yeah. the other stuff, um, I, I, you know, I outline as much as I feel is appropriate, and I get into it as quickly as possible. Okay. Because I, I, um, you know, you can get stuck forever making it perfect before you start, and uh, I uh, am horrified that I will do that. So I just want to start as soon as possible. <laughs> um, well, Fatu, that's interesting that way because you're really—it seems like you're setting up a lot of complex institutions throughout the process mm -hmm. doing it too yeah and there and, and a lot of planning went into that uh and planning still goes into it i like i don't every couple weeks i try to like go through my notes and sort of reassess how everything stacks and write you know write the next scene like, it, uh, as I approach each scene, I sort of get to the granular detail of writing the actual script and everything. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of planning, but I, I still feel like I dove into it pretty quick. I don't know. Now, when do you think you'll have the book three coming out? Um, I, don't, I don't know. The, the second one is, like, literally on the boat from China oh, right okay. now. I didn't realize that. <laughs> The uh, third one, and the, the second one was a little later than I wanted it to be. Uh, third one, I'm probably halfway through drawing it. It'll be another year or okay. year and a half. Well, if I realized that you had the second book on Rue, I wouldn't have asked about the third one. I apologize. No, that's fine. <laughs> now you know. So that'll be shipping out to folks uh, in the coming months. Yeah, Kickstarter folks should get it, like, uh, within a month. Um, well, I mean, like, early June, I guess I should say. And then it'll be available for everybody sometime around around then. <clears throat> nice. Well, thank you for joining me today, Evan. I thank really you for having it. me. Uh, this has been a long time coming, um, <laughs> and, I, and I apologize for waiting so long. Um, 
but no, I'm really happy to chat with you. And I really you too. Your books. It was lovely. I love your show. Oh, that's too kind. <laughs> Seriously, too kind. Okay, um, I take it back. <laughs> there we go. I uh, I prefer a nice like level of animosity between guests and uh, and me. Just kind of keep things awkward. You know, that's that's a respectable position, I guess. <laughs> Um, so yeah, folks, you can see Evan, uh, at VanCaf this weekend in lovely Vancouver, as well as you'll be at Cake in Chicago, SPX in lovely Bethesda, Maryland. Um, I, I, I use the term lovely very loosely there. Uh, <laughs> it's an amazing comic show in a desolate suburban. Yeah. Uh, if, if you love concrete, you'll love it. Yeah. I remember uh, walking far to find a restaurant. Yeah, I've been doing that show like longer than any other show. I love I love SPX so much, but uh, yeah, it's a weird spot. It's a great, it's a fantastic show. Um, mm-hmm. I was there a year and a half ago, and I really enjoyed it. And it's uh, it's amazing that it's been able to get so big, but still uh, um, have so much interesting stuff and really stay focused on comics. Yeah, definitely. Um, that, that's really nice to see. As well, you will be at the Tapaticon put on by the folks at Tapatico at the, uh, near the end of October. So there we go. Thank you so much, Evan. Thank you, Robin.